From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Kicking off another week. If you'd like to be part of the program, we've got a couple of open lines for you at the top of the hour here at 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and, uh, how am I doing? Ace? No. Who is it? Tell me, Michael. Throw me a bone. Charles Beery? Who's doing social? Rich Jesse is monitoring our social media activities. So if uh, you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it might find it, may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host today... Normally, Father John Tregilio, but he has his monthly faculty meeting at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. But fear not, we have an equally qualified Catholic intellectual to fill in for him, the one and only Dr. David Anders. How are you? Jack, happy to be here. How about you? Thanks for making the big commute from uh, call from, to communion to my, uh, I, open line. I, I, I commuted all of zero inches. <laughs> I'm in the go. same seat I was in last hour. <laughs> well, thanks for holding on there. And uh, we got one open line, so this is your opportunity. If you maybe you got uh, squeezed out by the clock of uh, call to communion, you can call with those general apologetics questions, or if you want to tell us why you're uh, not Catholic, we'd we'd entertain that question today during this particular hour. Well, David, normally speaking, we answer emails during this first segment, but we got folks that have hung around from call to communion time, and I want to reward their patience, and maybe we'll just go straight to the phones here at the top of the program, if that's all right with you. Fran is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Fran, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Dr. Anders, it's a privilege to be able to speak with you, and thank you for everything you do. Uh, My question, um, I've been away from the Church, been back uh, for the last five years or so, and I read, you know, I get a little disconcerted when when I read the Catechism, and it states, One mortal sin. Uh, can send you to hell, uh, no chance to repent, you go immediately, don't pass go. Um, you know, and I could see how people could turn to scrupulosity over such a thing. And um, can you expand on the, the catechism's teaching yeah, of the sure. model? Please? Absolutely, absolutely. So remember <clears throat> that you know, we talk about mortal sin and sanctifying grace. We say a person can be in the state of mortal sin, they be in the state of sanctifying grace. 
And there is a kind of pedantic, scrupulous way of thinking of that where, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a metaphor. Uh, you know, you get pulled over by a policeman and you find out too late that your driver's license, you know, expired yesterday. And you're like, oh, heck, you know, I, I had a valid license and now I don't have a valid license. And it's just this minor little technical matter that pushed me over from one state to another. And yet, clearly, driving without a valid driver's license is a, is a you know, is a, uh, is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a violation. You'll get ticketed for it. You might get a fine. You might have to pay the penalty. And isn't that unfortunate? And people who think of the spiritual life in those terms, like this is almost kind of a technical distinction that a person could haphazardly fall into, and then they're toast, as if God were nothing more than a kind of a celestial accountant whose job is just to sort of keep track of your ability to, uh, or worse, he's a, he's a celestial IRS agent, you know, whose, whose job is to audit the books and make sure that you've complied with every jot and tittle of a, of a Byzantine, no offense, uh, Easterners, uh, le- you know, uh, tax code, right, if you follow me. Okay, that's the wrong way to think about it. But I, I, I understand there's that tendency to think of it that way, and there are historical reasons why, but I wouldn't think of it that way. Keep in mind that another metaphor, another way of conceiving the sanctifying grace, and it's just a perfectly valid way, we talk about it in theology, is habitual grace. And that grace isn't a substance, uh, it is a, it's a quality, it's a manner of being in the world. And what is that manner of being? Well, it, it's the manner of being lovingly united to God. And so, let's start with the positive. Let's talk about what is the, what is the way that a person is in the world when they're lovingly united to him. Right? My, my, my heart is for Jesus, for my neighbor. I'm, I'm seeking to live a virtuous life. I'm seeking to purify myself of immoderate attachments. You know, I, 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 I want to do the good. Like, you know, Paul says in Philippians, always think about whatever is good and noble and true and beautiful and worthy of praise. And that's where my imaginative life lives. That's, that's where my moral life is. And, and could I go from that to being in a state where I'm self-centered or selfish or egocentric and I'm, I let myself slide into a kind of wanton concupiscence or, or wrath or dishonesty or something that just utterly vitiates that love of God and neighbor? That's what we're talking about moral sin. And the thing about moral sin is you can't do it by accident. Like, by definition, you can't do it by accident. And, uh, and you know, if a person is radically turned away from the good, then, then like, they don't want heaven in that moment. They want something less. And, uh, and that's, that's conceivable to us because we've all done it. We all have been in a place in our life where we don't just know in a nominal way, you know, in a kind of academic way because we went to catechism class. Here, don't do this, don't do this, don't this. But we know in a more visceral way, kind of existential way. I mean, think about something like marital fidelity, right? You don't need the Ten Commandments to understand what a violation of dignity it is to cheat on your wife. You don't need any command. Like, you, that's, that's inscribed into your nature. You can discern that from the reality of human relationships and human persons and your own rationality. And you can say, you know what, I, I really desire, I want to be a good husband, a good father, good parent. I want my progeny to remember me fondly. I want all my brood gathered around when I breathe my last and have people look up to me and go, you know, Dad was a good man. He did his best. He took care of us all, you know, in hard circumstances. That's the kind of guy I want to be. And then, and then, you know, here comes the temptation staring you in the face. And you look at it and you go, you know what, I could throw all of that away for a tryst with somebody that doesn't care about me for ephemeral pleasure. I'm going to make a choice. 
And uh, and then, you know, is that choice really morally determinative? Yeah, sure it is. Because, I mean, think about the hardship, the devastation that you would do to your family for those kind of choices. And yet men make them all the time. You know, um, uh, my, my dad was, um, you know, he was never going to be on the cover of GQ. All right. He was not a dapper, handsome fellow, but he was a fine Christian gentleman. And uh, but he had a position of influence and that made him sometimes, well, let's say attractive to people who would want to exploit him. And um, he had a couple situations in his professional life where, you know, women came and made offers to him. And um, and, uh, you know, he he told me one time, he says, you know, somebody says that kind of stuff to you like you think about it. And what I always came back to was it's not worth my wife. It's not worth my children. It's not worth my self-respect. It's not worth my relationship with God. So I said no. He said no. He did the right thing, you know. Um, but you can't do it by accident. That's the thing about mortal sin. It's not an accident. It's an eyes wide open kind of decision. Does that help, Fran? It does. And I, I just think that there's, you know, there's a fear out there with some of the readings I've been um, looking at on the Internet, of course. Um, you know, someone misses math, um, doesn't make it to confession. They get in a car accident, and it appears as though, according to the catechism, you're damned to hell. Oh, no, 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 no. Gross misunderstanding. Gross misunderstanding. So first of all, sin definitely differs from sin in point of gravity, all right? And so you don't—you should not think about the moral act and just have—it's just this dichotomy. Everything on this side of the line is a mortal sin. Everything on this side of the line is a venial sin. And that we can easily define those distinctions, Right, and that they're universal and they always hold. That's not the case. That's not the case. Uh, so let me give you an example. Uh, uh, if a priest who has a, 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 a duty of his vocation and one imposed by his bishop to say Mass every Sunday gets up one morning and says, I'd rather play golf. I'm going to go play golf. And the bishop and his Mass can go hang. That is very different that is just very different from, say, an overtaxed mother with five kids under the age of eight and, you know, two of whom, uh, you know, have the sniffles and, and, and had a terrible week. They're just not in the same moral situation with respect to missing mass. So you just can't do that kind of calculus the way you want to do it there. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Dr. David Andrews sitting in today for Father John Tregilio on EWTN's Open Line Monday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, get your children and your grandchildren together. Class is in session, courtesy EWTN Kids Faith Adventures. It features a variety of faith-filled television programs for children of all ages, including Cat Chat, The Friar, Children's Rosary, Tompkin and Blaze, Masterpiece Donut Shop, and much more. Visit EWTN.com slash kids for more. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Dr. David Andrews sitting in today for Father John Tregilio on Open Line Monday. We head back to the phones, and you know there are, there are certain things that you get in your mind for no good reason at all, but they're just in your mind. Oh, yeah. And for whatever reason, I have always thought, and I've never been there, been to a lot of places in the Republic, never been to Colleen, Texas, but the name just sits well with me for some reason and i always thought that you know what i bet i would like colleen texas and jack another jack is in colleen texas listening on armor of god radio jack you're on with dr david andrews hey thank you very much for taking my phone call and i would say um you could visit san antonio texas that would be nice for a tourist uh i was thinking uh, my question is related to um, the schism between the Orthodox and Catholic and how we always wish that that would come to an end. And the popes have tried at various times to, uh, to reconcile those two elements there. And I, I, re- I was listening to a uh, Catholic institution or Catholic culture, uh, uh, and uh, a lecture on that, and they talked about the Pope and the two anti-popes in the medieval times, and also, you know, China, I guess, influences who gets to be bishops there, and also in the medieval times, or before, it seemed that uh, secular leaders had a lot of say on who got to be a bishop. So I thought, um, you know, what if President Putin of Russia said, you know what, I'm I'm not only going to go through Ukraine, I'm going to go and take Rome, this is hypothetical, and I'm going to end the schism. Could legally do that by going, occupying Rome, and then saying, put a uh, an Orthodox bishop as, a, as the Pope. I'll just wait for the Pope to die, like Pope Francis to die, and then I'll have maybe uh, some cardinals, or bishops from Russia or whatever, or Greece, and then they'll be part of the vote, and they'll vote in an Orthodox bishop, become the next pope, and then the schism is ended. Is that actually legally or hypothetically possible? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the question itself presumes, I think, a uh, if you pardon my saying so, a kind of a naive view of what it would take to end the, the schism, all right? Um, in other words, putting putting a pope on the chair of St. Peter who who was entirely sympathetic to the Orthodox perspective on the schism might not be sufficient, right? But could you, in fact, manufacture the election of a pope who, say, didn't hold to like a—well, let me reframe— um, you can have a pope, technically, who is a material heretic. Let me draw a distinction. There's what we call formal heresy and there's material heresy. Formal heresy is when someone obstinately denies what they understand to be a dogma of the Catholic faith. Right? Material heresy is when they, when they deny a dogma of the faith, but they do it innocently because they don't know the dogma and they don't know they're denying it. Um, you can have a pope who's a material heretic, and we've had them before, right? Very doubtful that you could have a pope who's a formal heretic, uh, because if he were a formal heretic, he'd cease to be Catholic, right? Um, so that's doubtful, first of all. But could you get one that's a, that's a material heretic and would make all kinds of concessions politically 
that maybe a pope who knew his own doctrine better wouldn't do. Yeah, you you could do that. Um, and uh, and to be sure, you know, we've had we've had popes and bishops that have been more or less maneuvered into position by secular authorities that may not have the interests of the church in mind at all with those kinds of appointments, and and it can wreak havoc with the ecclesial life and the spiritual life of the people, and has done so. Um, but it, given all of that, would you actually be able to end the the schism? Well, no. I, I think it would. It's more complicated than that because, see, between 1054 and today, <clears throat> you've got like you know, little obstacles like the Council of Trent, for example, and 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 a, a history of infallible papal pronouncements. I mean, you've got developed dogmas that are part of the Catholic tradition that have been subject of ecumenical discussion for centuries. I mean, so Council of Florence, for example, which is before the Trent, of course, you know, made the issue of purgatory very pertinent in East-West West relations. One thing that a pope absolutely cannot do, I don't care what his disposition politically or theologically. He can't simply go in and erase a thousand years of Catholic dogma. He can't do that, and uh, and since the you know the, there are many Orthodox for whom those dogmatic questions are still determinative, it doesn't matter how willing the Pope is to make concessions. That you, you it's it's going to take a serious dialogue and and deep theological discussion, regardless of the willingness of the parties, to figure out a, a way of collectively affirming the faith, right, that uh, that doesn't deny anybody's dogmatic scheme and yet respects, you know, the historic union of the church and the, and the unique role of the Bishop of Rome. So I just think it's it's just, it's more of an uphill battle than that. We head next to Dubuque, Iowa. Ron is a first-time caller listening to us on Aquinas Communications. Ron, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Hi, David. Hi. This is Ron. Yeah, I'm talking. Uh, I was wondering when did the uh, what when was Lent developed? Yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate the question. So the um, the 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 significance of forty days of fasting is, of course, a biblical theme. Jesus is forty days in the wilderness, which are an imitation of the Israelite forty days in the desert, and. Elijah's 40-day trek to Mount Horeb. and Did I say 40 days? Yeah. I meant to say 40 years. Thank you for catching that. But, you know, we people are always dropping 40-unit increments in the Old Testament, you know, with, with some kind of spiritual significance. And so that, that makes a good deal of sense. Um, the celebration of, of uh, Sunday as the first Christian feast was quickly followed in the late 1st or early 2nd century by commemorating Easter, um, that's really the you know the first major liturgical feast other than Sunday that that uh, um, that receives a lot of attention in Christian antiquity and regular fasting as a part of the Christian life is also very ancient and so you'll find rules and regulations say in the Didache which is a late first or early second century document of Christian life it gives all kinds of instructions for how Christians are to fast um, and and so it was pretty early that you get the idea of a forty day fast prior to Easter. And, you know, to be sure, we find that by the fourth century. Uh, my, my knowledge of the history before that's a little dim, but but it's you definitely find it in the documents in the fourth century. And, uh, and so there you go. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. 
Next stop is Sawyer, Minnesota. Bruce is another first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bruce, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you so much for all the education you do. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm in RCIA right now, and um, one thing we covered was that Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human, but he was born of the Virgin Mary. So without any male part, a uh, human male part of him, wouldn't he just be a clone of Mary? So where did that male part, human part, come from? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, clearly, the, Jesus's virginal conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary was not simply cloning Mary. That, I mean, that's, that's fairly obvious. I mean, he would have had Y chromosomes, and she didn't have any to give him. Where did his Y chromosomes come from? I have absolutely no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Um, in the same way that I have no idea how the substance of bread and wine become the substance of his body and blood. I don't have any idea how that happened either. A lot of dogmas where I don't know how they happened. If there were a purely natural explanation for how this could come about, then we wouldn't call it a miracle. We might call it an anomaly. So we know that he had a Y chromosome. We know that he was biologically male. We know that he was fully human. All that's Catholic dogma. We know that it was born of a virgin, and so there is a big question mark that stands over the incarnation as to how that took place, and uh, and we don't have an answer. Don't know. That's a mystery. Don't know how it happened. Wish we could do more than that, Bruce, but that's the truth of the matter that is as the truth. we know it. If we knew how it happened, we could go reproduce it in a laboratory. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Teresa in Wilmington, North Carolina, another first-time caller listening on Wilmington Catholic Radio. Teresa, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Paul, um, I have a question, like, with falling away Catholics. Um, I have a friend who... Uh, Ash Wednesday Mass, and um, she thought she was just getting the ashes, and I, I thought I made it clear to her that it was a Mass. But anyway... Um, she had been away from the Catholic Church for quite some time and doesn't consider herself a Catholic anymore, but she received communion. So I want, you know, like, what's the most senseless way to, without offending, without offending her or pushing her away for the potential that, you know, she may come back to the Church one day, you know, that she should not be receiving communion, um, you know, until she's, you know, come back into the Church and, and my understanding of God's confession or or go through the RCIA program. So, yeah, um, yeah, I appreciate the question. So fortunately, Teresa, fortunately, you and I and Jack and Michael over here, we are not what are called the ordinary ministers of communion, right? And so it's it's not your responsibility or mine, or not ultimately the responsibility of any layperson to police access to the Eucharist. And, and so the Church teaches what it teaches, and it has the discipline that it practices for the good of souls, including the good of souls that are fallen away, and, and, it, and they follow that, you know, to their benefit, and they disregard it to their, to their harm. But, um, but in terms of who has the responsibility of teaching that and enforcing that, it's not you and it's not me. And if you have the kind of relationship with someone where you think you really could freely share this information without offending or driving them away, and they'd be likely to listen to you, then yeah, you could share it. But if you have grave doubts about that, if you think, you know, my saying something might really create a stumbling block here and I don't feel comfortable, then then prudence says you don't say anything, not at this point in time. 
Um, you know, I want someone to make a confession here. When I was uh, 19 years old, um, I, uh, I started dating the woman who would become my wife. She was a fallen away Catholic when I started dating her. We were at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. And if you've ever been to Tulane, you know you can, you can shoot a tennis ball cannon and hit Loyola University. I know because I did it, right? And at her uh, uh, urging, I once went with her to Mass and ignorantly received communion before I was Catholic. You know? We'll pick this up in just a moment we'll if you'd like to, to be yeah. part of the program, 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's Open Line Monday. Dr. David Andrews sitting in for Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. So, Dr. Andrews, we're talking about a question that comes up from time to time about... uh, First of all, what is our responsibility, which you pointed out, it really wasn't part of the question, with regard to those who uh, are not Catholic uh, presenting themselves to receive Holy Communion? And um, if we are in a position to know of someone who's done that, what is our responsibility? And if we feel like we can approach them about that, what's the best way to go about it? Yeah, so, you know, um, what what we do here at Somehow we got to tennis ball cannons. Yeah, because my my one like ill-considered communion in the Catholic Church before I was actually Catholic, because I didn't know better. I didn't know better. I, I went to the Mass with a friend and my girlfriend and went to communion, didn't know I wasn't supposed to. Um, so it happens. It, I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I, I like what they do at the network, uh, because as you know, there's always an announcement before every Mass that says, hey, we're glad you're here. We welcome you. Please come back. Um, if you're not Catholic and... If you are Catholic but not properly disposed, you hadn't been to sacramental confession, conscious of grave sin, please don't come to communion. It doesn't mean we don't love you. It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love you. It means we're really trying to look out for your soul. There's a beloved priest in our diocese here who makes that announcement after the Eucharistic prayer from the altar before he starts to distribute communion. That's right. That's yeah. right. And the, the thing to really remember here is this: this doesn't mean— that the Catholic Church is judging non-Catholics and finding them wanting. It doesn't mean that at all. On the contrary, it means the exact opposite, that the the priest can only judge his own parishioners that have been to confession, right? If you're outside the jurisdiction of the Church, we literally cannot judge you. And Paul says, do not judge people outside the Church. Because we can't judge you, we can't evaluate your suitability for communion, and therefore you're, you're safer not going. And so it really is a pastoral solicitude. It's out of the care for souls because we respect and, uh, and, and love and want the best for non-Catholic Christians that we say, you know, to be on the safe side, you, you can't come to communion. Plus, if you do come to communion, what you're doing by your actions is you're testifying that you think that this is the church that Christ founded— and implicitly, you're saying, I believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches. And odds are you probably don't. And so why would you want to like, bear false witness against yourself by saying with your actions something that you, in fact, don't believe? So, But if you get to the point that you actually believe the Catholic faith, well, then I'll put the question to you that is the theme of my show on EWTN. What, at that point, what on earth is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? If you want to go to communion, hey, become Catholic. We'd love to have you. Uh, now, just in a, in a second here, we're going to talk to Tom in Iowa, but before that, uh, we had a caller who called in with kind of a follow-up to Jack's question yeah, yeah. in Colleen, Texas, 
And he referenced John Paul II saying that the East and the West are the two lungs of the church. So doesn't that mean that Orthodox and Catholic churches are equal? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the, the difficulty with that framing is that what John Paul has in mind here are not so much two jurisdictions as two theological, spiritual, cultural patrimonies, right? So there is a thing called Eastern Christianity, um, uh, of which there are fully Catholic exemplars, right? So there are, what, 22 Eastern Rite Catholic churches um, whose theological idiom, whose canon law, whose spiritual traditions are entirely Eastern. They're Greek, they're Syriac, uh, yeah, they're Slavonic, and they're part of the Catholic Church. Um, now, those, that same spiritual patrimony, that same body of literature and law and, 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 uh, uh, and, the, and writings, is, uh, is precious both to Catholic and Orthodox. And, and, um, and then there are the people of God themselves, right, of course, as well. And so the Pope is saying, like, we can't be the Catholic Church without having access to that entire spiritual patrimony, which I think is absolutely correct. That is a very different question from asking whether or not, say, the current, you know, jurisdictional division of Christendom, you know, with all the different autocephalous, uh, you know, Orthodox uh, communities, is uh, that that's necessary somehow to the Church. And in fact, that's not necessary to the Church. That's that's really an offense against against her unity, obviously. Um, so the, the the goal is how can we bring people who celebrate this magnificent Eastern patrimony into a kind of unity with one another, which they don't enjoy, and and with the Church of the Pope. Now we'll head to Tom in the great state of Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Tom, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Yeah, thanks. So my question pertains to um, being in a state of mortal sin and the consequences of such. Uh, for a person who has passed away without receiving the anointing of the sick, um, particularly, um, uh, if I, I won't get too specific, but a person suffering from drug addiction that had uh, passed away. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a state of moral sin. So, Tom, first of all, I, I have a, I have a feeling you're probably asking about somebody that you know, and I want you to know that yes. that my heart goes out to you. And I'm profoundly sympathetic to your plight, and um, and I care about you, and I care about this soul. Um, secondly, I would say you don't know that that soul died in mortal sin. You don't know that. What you know is that they died in questionable moral circumstances, and so you have a doubt and you have a concern. Um, but God is the judge of souls, and you don't know that that soul died in mortal sin. There is a story about Padre Pio. I cannot tell you this story is true. It may just be a legend for all I know, but it's illustrative, so I'm going to share it. Padre Pio, you know, was alleged to have certain preternatural gifts. He had, uh, he could read souls, and he would, was, you know, said to know things that people couldn't know. And uh, a man came to Padre Pio, or a woman, and said, you know, my, my son committed suicide. He jumped off a bridge. Um, is he, uh, where is he? And Padre Pio, you know, went to prayer and said, oh, it's okay. He, uh, he repented on the way down. That soul's in heaven. Now, suicide's a mortal sin, but he's, that guy didn't die in mortal sin, right? And so you don't know. You just don't know who dies in mortal sin. Um, and so, the, the, you know, the disposition of the church is very generous about this kind of situation, 
I mean, there are some rare circumstances in which somebody will be denied a Catholic burial, but, but you know, by and large, the, we're going to pray for the repose of all souls. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, there are some we know for sure are in heaven. Those are the canonized saints. But when it comes to knowing who's in hell, we don't know for sure who's in hell. You know, it doesn't look too good for Judas, but apart from him, like, we don't know. And so I think it's always the proper disposition to maintain a hopeful attitude. And remember that God loves this soul more than you do, and God desires that all people come to know him and be saved. And so, you know, we pray, the Fatima prayer that we append to the rosary is that we pray that all souls go to heaven, especially those most in need of his mercy. Well, who would fall under that description more than the person you just mentioned? Lord, bring all souls to heaven, especially those most in need of his mercy. Do you think it would be sensible to pray for that intention if it were not realistic, that God could, in fact, bring all souls to heaven, and especially those most in need, including those maybe who died in overdose or something like that? So just, yeah, I would not I would not despair at all. And You just pray for the repose of that person's soul, have mass said for them, and remember that God is both just and merciful, and you leave it up to him. God bless you, Tom, and uh, one great thing that you've done by calling the program today is that a whole bunch of folks are going to be praying for you Absolutely. and for your friend. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Dr. David Andrews sitting in today for Father John Tregilio would love to take your call at 833-288-3986. David wants to know, is it okay to sin for a good reason? No. No, there is no good reason to sin. There is an right. there is an and now there is a not an analogy. There is an axiom that comes to mind. Um you can't do evil hoping to bring yeah. about a good result. So there's the the moral theologians call this consequentialism, the doctrine of consequentialism. Consequentialists hold that I can that I can that the ends justify the means. And so, you That's know, the axiom I was. Yeah. So some of with. the some of the consequences of consequentialism would be the following. You know, Jack might have knowledge about an impending terrorist attack. I have no reason to think that he does, but he just might. So why don't, you know, Jack booted thugs, pick him up in the middle of the night, carry him off to a secret military prison and torture him half to death to see if he'll give up any information on this impending terrorist attack. Right, and then let's just do that to about a million people, and maybe we'll get some actionable intelligence. That—that's the kind of barbarity that results once you admit the principle of consequentialism. It really—it ends up justifying anything, um, you know, because of somebody's conception of what they think is the greatest good, you know, the common good. And the Catholic position is no, you cannot ever positively will evil for its own sake, even if it has a positive consequence or seemingly positive consequence. However. There is a flip side of that coin called the principle of double effect, and that is you can do a good thing even if it has an evil unintended consequence if you have a sufficient reason, right? But you can't do an evil thing to bring about a good result. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. That's the number Brian used, a first-time caller in Frenchtown, Montana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Brian, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Dr. Andrews, thank you for taking my call. Uh, question for you. Is, first of all, I grew up as a Baptist, um, converted to Catholicism about 15 years ago, thanks to my lovely wife. Um, but I'm part of a large group of Christian men. We have uh, 
I'd say probably 99% of them are Protestants, and many of them, probably 10 or so, are Baptist ministers. Every time I bring up being Catholic or, you know, things about the Catholic faith, I, I tend to get a term it as being beat with the Bible. Yep. If it is not in the Bible, it did not occur. How would you counter that? How do absolutely. you <laughs> absolutely absolutely okay? So you're talking here about the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and it is put forth as an article of faith. Like to be a Christian is to believe that God gave us the Bible to be our rule of faith. God gave us the Bible to answer definitively and comprehensively every question we have about theology or the moral life or church, government, or you name it. It's all in the Bible. That's what the Bible is for. Okay, And that is an article of faith. You have to believe that if you're a Protestant. Now, um, I want you to—one th- of the things that that entails, although Protestants often don't think about this, but it is, it is implicit in the statement— is it implies that they have a coherent doctrine of what the Bible consists in. In other words, if you say, oh, okay, God gave us the Bible as the rule of faith, what is that Bible? Can you point it out to me? And they'll, you know, they'll maybe pull a King James version off their shelf of their local Christian bookstore and hand it to you, and you open up to the table of contents, and you'll find, you know, 66 books generally from Genesis to Revelation in a particular order. And you said, this is the book right here? Yeah, that's the book. All right. So here's my question for you, uh, my, my Protestant friend. You think you say that for something to be believed as an article of faith in the Christian tradition, that I must find it articulated in the pages of these 66 books. Is that correct? Oh, yes, that's correct. Okay, so my first question to you is, where is that stated in the Bible? The principle that you just said, that you have to find it in the Bible— and keep in mind, the Bible here means these 66 books. Where does the Bible say that God intends these 66 books to be our rule of faith? Now, you know where the Bible says that, Brian? It doesn't say it anywhere. And so the, the principle of sola scriptura fails its own test. It is incoherent. It is internally inconsistent. It sets forth as a dogma that all dogmas must be established by the express words of these 66 books, and yet none of those 66 books ever says, here are the 66 books to which you must advert to answer questions of theology or practice. Do, do you follow where I am so far, Brian? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. All right. yes, so sir. it is internally inconsistent. It, it testifies against itself. All right. Let me give you another argument, a couple more. Let's go to the question of those 66 books. Now, you probably know, maybe your friends know, maybe they don't, that in the history of Christianity, what counts as the Bible has not always been agreed upon. Christians, and to this day it isn't, Christians from different communions and at different ages have proposed different lists of books. So if you go over to the Ethiopian Orthodox community today, for example, you'll find the Book of Enoch. They're the only ones that have Enoch. All right, they, I think they've still got First Clement in their New Testament. Um, obviously, you know that Protestants and Catholics don't have the same list of books. Orthodox don't have the same list of books. So you have competing canons of the Bible, and you did in antiquity as well, different canonical lists. How does the Baptist know he's got the right list? Well, the Bible itself doesn't publish its own table of contents. Read the whole book of Genesis. You're not going to find the table of contents of the rest of Scripture. Read every book of the New Testament. You're not going to find anywhere in there 
you know, say, for example, that Esther needs to be in the Bible or that the book of Jude needs to be in the Bible. There's no biblical text stating that. And so the, the whole idea of the canon as a collection is something that we know not from Scripture itself, but from sacred tradition. So if you throw out tradition, you've got to throw out the canon of the Bible, the list of biblical books, uh, because the Bible itself doesn't give you the canon. Right. Um, so here's another argument for you. If you hold the principle of the Bible alone, how do you differentiate articles of faith, things that all Christians have to agree on, like, say, the Trinity of the Incarnation, how do you differentiate articles of faith or dogmas of the faith from mere theological opinion, things about which people could disagree? So let me give you an example. Like, you know, probably your Baptist friends don't make that big a deal out of whether or not women should wear head coverings in church. And there might be some congregations where they do, and there might be some congregations where they don't, but, you know, by and large, they're probably like, hey, you know, let bygones be bygones. We'll disagree on this thing, but it's not—you're not, like, outside of redemption because of that, right? Um, but, hey, you deny the Trinity, we're going to write you off. The one is a dogma, the one's just kind of an opinion. How do they know what's dogma and what's opinion? Now, notice the dilemma if you're a Protestant. You can't just point to the Bible to settle the problem. Because, because it's not even a problem about interpreting the Bible. It's a problem about how much weight do you place on disagreements over interpretation. And the Bible itself doesn't address that ever. It never addresses it. There's no criteria brought to bear to determine that. And so it becomes, it becomes uh, empty, vapid as a rule of faith, right? Because there's no principled way to settle the distinction between dogma and opinion. When you get to the actual question of exegesis and interpretation, it becomes even worse. You know, and that is, all right, so given 500 years of Protestant history, it's very evident that the Bible lends itself to very diverse and, and incommensurate interpretations. Uh, how do you solve that problem? If it's meant to be a clear, perspicuous document that gives instructions on Christian dogma and practice, it does a really lousy job. You know, witness the 50,000 different Protestant denominations in, in, in a quite a few different theological traditions, all of whom appeal to the Bible as the rule of faith, and it fundamentally doesn't function that way. Um, so, so I think practically, empirically, if you look at the Bible and say, what is it actually like? Does it present itself like a user's manual or a theology textbook? And the answer is obviously no. I mean, the biggest book is a book of poetry. A lot of it consists in narrative. A good bit of the New Testament consists in occasional, you know, epistles. N none of the particular works of the Bible set themselves forth, present themselves as being a kind of comprehensive manual of Christian doctrine or practice, but very occasional documents in very different genre. And so the, the, the process of actually trying to use it as a rule of faith, is something like turning to the user's manual of my Toyota Camry to ask, how could I make a good lemon meringue pie? It is a category mistake, right, that radically misstates the nature of what the Bible actually is. And then here's my final argument, and this, I think, is just the, the knockdown, drag-out winner, and that is, if the Bible isn't our rule of faith, then what is? And did Jesus give any instruction on the matter? And, of course, he did. When, when Jesus makes provision to hand on the Christian faith, he nowhere says, go into all nations and give them the Bible. 
What he says instead to the eleven is, go into all nations, make disciples, and teach them everything I've commanded you. The very same disciples to whom he said, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Those are the guys that are go out and to teach his oral tradition, what Jesus never wrote down, and make disciples until the end of the age, until Christ comes back, empowered by his divine assistance. When Christ gave instructions for handing on the Christian faith, he explicitly indicated that it was sacred tradition and the teaching authority of the church that would be the rule of faith, not the Bible. So why then do Baptists come up with this radically unbiblical, totally dysfunctional, unworkable rule of faith? For one reason only. They were taught to do so by their tradition. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. You know, we've got a great new program here on EWTN Radio, Beacon of Truth, with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Um, it airs on EWTN Radio at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, right after Open Line. And today, a very special program. Deacon Harold welcomes special guests Greg and Julie Alexander, and they will have a wonderful discussion on marriage. Marriage is under attack like never before, and it is the cornerstone of our civilization, uh, both uh, secularly and spiritually. So be sure to check that out today. Deacon Harold welcomes Greg and Julie Alexander uh, on Beacon of Truth, 4 p.m., Eastern Time. Craig is up next. He's in East Texas, another first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Craig, you're on with Dr. Anders. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Anders. I was concerned about not ending my life, but at the end of my life, in my old years, and whenever I get something that you're going to die with, but I do not want to go with the procedures as far as the costly of cancer or some other type of illness like that. Yes. And I know asking the doctor to end your life is totally a sin, but I do not want the cost of all this if I'm going to pass anyway. Yes. And go to... I got you. I I got you. I understand the question. So here's the good news for you. You are not obligated, you are not obligated to do everything medically possible to extend your life. That is not the Catholic teaching. Um, And in fact, there are interventions that are extraordinary, that have low chance of success, and that impose a significant burden, could be financial, could be psychological, could be physical. And uh, or if they have a high chance of success, the success they have is uh, is quite marginal in terms of actually extending your lifespan. You know, you could spend tens of thousands of dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, maybe squeeze out another month. You know, that sort of thing. Church says you don't have to do those things. You don't have to do those things. What you here's what you have to do. Um, you cannot commit suicide. That you can't do that. You cannot intentionally end a person's life. Now starving them to death or depriving them of water and dehydrating them with the specific intent of ending their life when they're still capable of metabolizing food and water, that is a form of murder. That is a form of suicide. So, you, you, you know, you can't, you can withhold food and water when they can no longer be metabolized. But as long as they can sustain you, then you have to do that. But beyond that, you, you don't have to take every medical intervention possible. You do not have to do that, particularly if they're burdensome and costly and have low chance of success. Uh, Jean is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. She's listening on Holy Family Radio today. Jean, you're on with Dr. Anders. Yes, thank you. Um, I heard you say um, a little while ago that someone who probably would be in hell would be Judas. 
And I've always kind of questioned that because I feel that he was actually kind of fulfilling a prophecy. Um, if he hadn't turned Jesus over, Jesus wouldn't have been able to fulfill his prophecy right. of going to the cross and saving us. So I don't really see why he always is right. kind of like the bad guy right. and always being like he's punished. Right. I see your point. So the question really is, it's not just about Judas, but really, if my actions follow some plan of divine providence, then can I be held morally responsible? I mean, that, that's really the question. And that would be true not only for Judas, but for all of us. And here's the Catholic teaching, that God predestines our free choices. I'll state that again because it seems paradoxical. God predestines our free choices. That our choices really are ours. We really have agency over them. They really are free, and we really are morally responsible. But God can can superintend reality such that he makes use of our free human choices to bring about his eternal purposes. Now, well, I'll leave it to the philosophers to to speculate about how those things can both be true, but that is the Catholic dogma. So Judas's actions were not coerced, regardless of the fact that God foresaw them and prophesied them. They were not coerced. They were his actions. They were freely chosen, and he was morally responsible. And Loretta in Melbourne, Florida, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Loretta, just about a minute left with Dr. Andrews. What's your question today? Well, I just have a comment, and it goes back 10 minutes. But uh, a way our church handles people who should not come to communion, I like your way. You just announced it. But we say um, for for those who are too young or another faith or for other otherwise not properly disposed to come to communion, please approach the altar uh, the the altar rail cross your hands across your chest and you'll get a blessing yeah thanks I appreciate that, that that's very commonly done in a lot of parishes um, you know but the truth of the matter is is that if you sit at the end all the way through mass you're gonna get a blessing whether you leave your pew or not David thanks for being so gracious with your time and filling in for father Trujillo. Hey, thanks for the opportunity Jack really appreciate it it's our it's our pleasure on behalf of today's host Dr. David Anders our producer Michael McCall call screener Matt Gubensky and our social media maven Mr. Rich Jesse I'm Jack Williams thanks so much for tuning in and helping us kick off another great week of EWTN's open line back at it tomorrow with father Wade Menezes talking faith family and fellowship until we get together then God bless.